27, we return this morning, and we're going to pick up at verse 45. This is in your Bibles at page 834, your pew Bibles, that is, if that's helpful. Last week we said we're coming from the portico of the temple into the holy of holies of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. But to follow the metaphor, we're coming right to the mercy seat this morning, right between those cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. From the perspective of history, we're coming to the very apex. From the literary perspective, we're coming to the climax of Matthew's gospel. From the perspective of salvation, we are coming to the very heart of the matter. Here, dear flock, we're coming to the most sacred three hours of the entire existence of the universe. If ever a preacher must feel his own impotence to convey the truth before him to his flock or a congregations to adequately receive it, this is the time. Therefore, let's seek the Lord in prayer. Father, we are about to enter into a place that is beyond us. And so we pray, Father, that you will give us some wisdom, some degree of understanding, even as we take hold of the mystery that we're about to read. Send your spirit, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 27. Uh, by the way, Jesus has already been on the cross by the, this point for three hours, the time that we considered last week from nine in the morning until noon. Now we're going to pick up at high noon in verse 45, what in the Jewish system of timekeeping was called the sixth hour. What we read today covers the last three hours that our Savior spent on the cross that day. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. What the other authors of Scripture tell us about the cross, that it is the place where Christ died for our sins, that it was there that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, that he is the propitiation for our sins. I say what the other Bible writers tell us, Matthew simply shows us. 
Without didactic interpretation or explanation or even application, Matthew simply walks us up to the historic cross, escorts us by the hand into these dark, likely silent three hours at Calvary that are suddenly and finally shattered by one lone voice of inexplicable agony crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What can we say about this? We can only make our way around the edges. That's all we can do. There's so much more here than meets the eye, whether that very day or or this one. We've come up against this morning against impenetrable mystery. Even as we sang in this house together just last week, tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. It would be in vain for us, as it would be even for the firstborn seraph, to pretend that we might ever sound the depths of divine love. We will never find the bottom, but God helping us, at least we can attempt this morning to plunge a little way under the surface by considering the circumstance and the saying. A circumstance and a saying that Matthew supplies us from these last three hours, a circumstance and a saying that certainly relate directly to one another. First, consider the circumstance, and by that I mean, of course, consider with me the darkness that suddenly developed at the very point of day when the sun should have been its brightest, high noon. And we experienced something of this ourselves, a very small sampling of it, very small indeed, didn't we, of darkness at midday five years ago last Sunday on August 21, 2017 during what has been called the Great American Eclipse, the greatest point of the eclipse, interestingly, falling right on us here in western Kentucky. How eerie it was for us to stand outside during those same three hours, noon to three, times when the sun should have been at its brightest, but instead in looming shadow. But can we begin to understand what it must have been like for those people at noonday when darkness enveloped the land. And more importantly, can we fully understand today what it means? Why did the sun go dark? Why? Was it because, as Matthew Henry put it, the sun never saw such wickedness as this before and therefore withdrew? Or is it as Jerome so cleverly commented, the sun retracted its rays lest it might seem to be weighing down the Lord. Well, we'll certainly do well to remind ourselves at this point whom it is who is dying on that cross. This is Jesus, the Son of God. God, the Son. Now, what's the relationship between the divine sun, and the star in the center of our solar system that we call sun. Think for a minute. 
Who was it that created the sun? Was it not the sun? Remember, it was not the Father. It was not the Father who said, let there be light. Now, true enough, it is the Spirit whom we find hovering over the face of the waters as the book of Genesis opens, but it was God the Son who said on the first day, let there be light. It was God the Son who on the fourth day spoke the Son into being and the moon and all the stars. Remember what we learn from John, that all things were made through Him. Through whom? Through the Son, Jesus. It was the Son, says the writer of Hebrews, through whom God created the world. And now, as we'll sing in a little while, it's meet and right that the Son should hide its face as Christ the mighty Maker dies for man, the creature's sin. This is a cosmic event with cosmic consequence. It's fitting that this decisive moment should be painted in black. He who spoke the sun into being is now dying like a criminal below it. No wonder it sheds not its light. Now we may look further clear for, for clearer cues from Scripture concerning the nature and meaning of this darkness. We remember that judgment, judgment, God's judgment in the Bible is often, if not always, accompanied by darkness, whether literal or figurative. We hear the words of the prophet Amos ringing in our ears, declaring that on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun. How many times in Scripture is not darkness the sign of God's judgment against sin? We find darkness in the Bible, for one, marking God's judgment on ungodly individuals. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Think blasphemers. Think those hidden reefs that uh, Luke was preaching to you just a few weeks ago from Jude, those wandering stars for whom what has been reserved? For whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved forever. We find darkness second in the Bible marking God's judgment on heathen nations, as in Isaiah. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. And we find darkness in the Bible marking God's judgment on unfaithful Israel. Ah. This may go a long way toward answering now the question about the darkness that fell that day. As Israel as unfaithful, unbelieving, rebellious Israel nailed their king and ours to the cross. The darkness prophesied against the royal nation for slaying their rightful sovereign, the Messiah, sent specifically to and for them, was falling that day. 
Indeed, had not Jesus himself prophesied, and, and, and we study this together in the same gospel, back in chapter 8 of Matthew, that these, these very leaders of Israel, the sons of the kingdom, will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where Jesus adds, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The darkness that fell on Calvary was a portent of the darkness that would come upon Israel just a few decades later. The horrific death and destruction dealt her by Rome in A.D. 70. Yes, the darkness of both Calvary and A.D. 70 point to the eternal outer darkness, to that place where, as Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell. Ultimately, darkness in the Bible bespeaks God's ultimate everlasting punishment that scripture calls hell it was hell that came to calvary that day even satan remember we noticed this last week even satan made his appearance there remember last week how we heard him hissing at calvary through the people just as he did in the wilderness at the beginning of jesus ministry if you are the Son of God. The darkness that fell on the land those three hours was the darkness of God's judgment. But dear ones, that circumstance of outer darkness points us to an even deeper darkness. And that is Jesus' inner darkness. So from the circumstance of Calvary now, we go with Matthew to consider second the saying, verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you agree that this must be one of, if not the most disturbing sayings in all of Scripture? So disturbing is it that various theories have popped up by way of trying to explain it. Of course, we know that it is a quotation from Psalm 22, a psalm of David, which we'll sing a little bit later together as well. So some suppose that Jesus was simply referring to it, calling attention to it as a biblical description of what he was undergoing. Others argue that Jesus, of course, he felt he felt forsaken by God, though in fact, of course, he was not. It simply felt that way to Jesus. But when we consider all that the Bible has to say about the cross, about the penalty of our sin that was required, we considered it just a few moments ago in the assurance of pardon, about the requirement that someone pay Pay what? The horrific penalty, the eternal separation from the love of God. We needn't try to, to qualify the plain words pressed from the heart and from the lips of our Savior on the cross. Jesus was forsaken by God. 
while he bore our sin, yours and mine and all his people's sin on the cross. This is what your sin and mine required, that Jesus go to hell. That he go through hell for us, that we might share his heaven. To be forsaken. What is that? Let's have delight of God's presence, of his, of his countenance, the very thing we leave blessed with every Lord's day from this house. Totally eclipsed. Totally shut out. This is precisely what happened on the cross. Jesus, in those hours of utter darkness, was suffered inwardly the deepest darkness of all the wrath of God against sin. Against your sin. How can it be? How can it be that one member of the Trinity forsake another? Turn his back on another? How can the Father do this as the Scripture says? Make his Son who knew no sin to be sin. For us. I can't tell you. Nobody can. I can't explain this to you. It's beyond my ken. It's beyond yours. It's beyond the brightest theologians who have ever lived to begin to comprehend. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was there ever a cry in all of human history that contained more of the emotions, the sorrow, the fear, the desperation, the longing than this one does? What must, have it, what must it have meant, really? Yes, we put it in simple terms. We know that this abandonment was the penalty for our sin that he was bearing in our place. But how do we begin to enter into this? How do we even form words to describe the depth of the suffering of the Son as he is alienated from the Father? He descended into hell on the cross. That we confess and have confessed times without number in this house of worship. But as we say those words, do we fathom what we're saying? How can we tell what it meant for him who hated sin with such a perfect, impeccable hatred, who never once gave into its power, never once yielded to a single temptation, who disdained sin with every fiber of his being, now to bear it and to have its guilt assigned to him. He was perfectly innocent, and now he stood condemned before the tribunal of heaven for every sin, as if he himself had committed every single one of them himself. You and I, you know, we, from time to time, we shed a few tears over our sin, and rightfully so, especially when they're shown to us and 
one particular moment or another for their ugliness. We loathe ourselves at times, don't we? We even wish we were someone else when the shame of what we've done is visited on our own hearts. But then eventually we get over it. And we move on. We even live every day with a certain level of sin still active in us and hardly consider it a burden, truth be told. But what must it have meant for him, a perfect man and therefore one who was revolted and disgusted and ashamed to the core as a perfect man must be? And then bearing the shame and the the guilt and, and to be made, as it were, the most despicable sinner who had ever lived. Even as he himself was sinless, he faced the enormity of evil and its consequence as if it were all his own. Personally. And oh yes, he prayed this prayer. He made that cry as a man. But he was also God. He was suffering his own wrath. He was satisfying his own justice. His own justice. His own wrath. That's what divine abandonment was. It's said that Martin Luther gave himself for hours to meditating on this saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only to rise and say, God forsaken of the world, or, or God forsaken of God, rather, who can understand it? He had finally to give up. John Calvin tries, writing that if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. No, it was necessary at the same time for him to undergo the severity of God's vengeance. He had to grapple hand to hand with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death. Grapple hand to hand with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death. You know what those words mean, of course, but do we grasp them? Yes, we can define each of those words from the dictionary, but we don't really understand them. Jesus did undergo and, and suffer the dread of everlasting death, didn't he? He suffered hell. He suffered being abandoned by God. What must that be like? You've been abandoned maybe by someone. You know what it's like to be abandoned by, by a fellow human being, perhaps. Someone you love. Someone you admire. You know the pain of being abandoned by that person. But what must it be to be abandoned by God, your Father, whom you love? One of you was anticipating this morning's text in a conversation with me after the morning service last week. And you pointed out something that has never, had never occurred to me. I think I was saying something to you about how much Jesus loves us. He loves us so much that he... As we saw last week, he stayed on the cross. He was willing to remain on the cross for us. And yes, you agreed it was his love for us. But then you added, was it not even more his love 
for his father that kept him on the cross. He loved his father with such a perfect love, didn't he? Obedience to his father, loving obedience was, was everything to Jesus. Did he not say, did we not hear him say that the will of God was his meat and his drink? Yes, Jesus, the only man, he's the only man who ever completely obeyed every commandment of God. The commandment to love God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. He's the only one who's ever done it. And how he lived on. Drawing constantly from the bottomless well of the love of the Father to him at every point, every moment of every day. God's love, the love of his Father was his strength, it was his delight, it was, it was his everything. Now what then, you went on to add last Sunday morning in the narthex, what must it have meant during that time on the cross to find that the Father whom he loved so perfectly and whose love was his chief delight, his joy, his life, the very reason that he had willingly gone to the cross and now turned his wrathful back to him. Suddenly the reality of this cry of dereliction takes on a new hue, doesn't it? Unrequited love was the way we concluded the conversation. God, Jesus loving the Father. The Father pouring out every ounce of his wrath on the Son. Was Jesus surprised by the nature of the cross? That our sin, the sin of all his straying sheep, would be laid on him? Of course not. He knew this hour was coming. He declared it. He'd, he'd read the prophets. He knew what they say. He purposely gave himself. He said, I'm going to lay down my life as the shepherd for the sheep. But as long as we're touching the outskirts of mystery, I ask you, could Jesus, the true and genuine man that he was in every way just as you are says the scripture could he have as a man possibly fully anticipated what was waiting for him there in that darkness once more I find myself in an impossible place we all do in way, way over our heads. Even our Bible doesn't even attempt to explain it to us. Maybe it's, it's because even if it did, we couldn't understand it anyway. How does the finite begin to understand the infinite? So what shall we do with it? I guess that's always the real question, isn't it? What are we going to do with this reality that rises so infinitely far above and below our finite hearts and minds? 
Well, Matthew supplies us the anti-application, the application in the negative, in those people who heard the cry but totally missed the point, mistaking Jesus' Aramaic Eloi or Eli, my God, for, for Eli as in Elijah. They waited to see if maybe Elijah would show up. You know, maybe he's calling Elijah. They're idling there at the cross. They're so close, and yet they remain shut out by their ignorance, truly in their darkness, in the indifference of their hearts to the salvation that was unfolding right before their eyes. Not you. Not you. There are three things for you and for me to do with, with this, and they are these first. Let us ponder. Let's ponder. Let's think and think often on what Jesus has done for us, even if we have no hope ever of fully taking it in. I think I told you the story fairly recently, so I'll not rehearse every detail, but just to remind you of that man nicknamed Rabbi, Rabbi Duncan, the 19th century Scottish minister and professor, so nicknamed Rabbi because of his knowledge of Hebrew and his work to reach the Jewish people with the gospel. You may remember the story how he was teaching his senior class about, about that cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or at least it came to his mind and pacing back and forth in front of his classroom, turning over this truth and looking at the suffering of Christ for sinners first from this direction and now from that suddenly a flash went through him as if heaven had opened and he straightened himself up. His face kindled into a rapture. He turned to the class more as it seemed for sympathy than to teach. I, I, do you know what it was? Do you know what it was? Dying on the cross, forsaken by his father. Do you know what it was? It was damnation. And damnation taken lovingly. And he subsided in his chair, leaning to one side, his head very straight and stiff, his arms hanging down on either side beyond the arms of the chair with light beaming from his face and tears trickling down his cheeks. He repeated in a low, intense voice and a half sob and a half laugh in the middle. It was damnation. And he took it lovingly. Dear ones, let that love of Christ, whose depths you cannot plumb, move you. Though you can hardly understand it or the price that he has paid, nevertheless, take the time, at least take the time to ponder this, to meditate on this, to consider it, to, to meditate on that love, that amazing love. Let it amaze you and let it, let it amaze you again and let it amaze you again. Second, trust. Trust, dear flock, my brothers and sisters, that what he has done so far beyond comprehension as it is, let alone our, um, our ability to undo, that what he has done for you in that completeness, completeness and finality send you Trusting in Him. What that cry means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What it means is that 
Everything your sin deserves has been suffered in your place on the cross. Perfect book ends with another saying of the cross, right? It is finished. Sometimes even Christians, even the most mature Christians, are tempted to doubt. They're tempted to wonder, is it true? You know, if perhaps they still, maybe still need to add something else, something else to the sacrifice of Christ, or if there's some possibility that they might still in the end suffer God's wrath after all, then it's time for a soliloquy. It's time for a little talk with your own soul. From the same famous hymn writer who gave us rock of ages cleft for me, Augustus Toplady, we have received this impeccable argument to present to our own sometimes doubtful souls. From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. Ponder, trust, and then third praise. Let the consideration of his forsakenness for you, whatever that must mean, send you with the Apostle Paul bursting with doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.